I worked out yesterday. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, You are the King of glory. You are the Lord of lords. We thank You, God, for the grace that we get to come into Your presence. We just, we just call upon Your name and we have Your full attention right now. What an amazing God. Thank You, God, that You have made the way to us, that You have uh, crossed the gap so that we might come into Your presence with confidence, approach that throne of glory with confidence, You say, in Your Word. And so, God, I want to just ask that You would be our great teacher today, that You would give us uh, the benefit of Your Spirit, that we would uh, know and uh, trust You and have gratitude in our hearts, would find ourselves in the duplicitousness of those who pledge to love you, and yet would anticipate uh, your saving grace. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are beginning part 11, and as it works out, there's 12 parts. Which is, isn't it that, I didn't, I didn't plan that ahead of time, it just worked, just worked out. One part for every inch and a foot. Um, Alright, so, just to remind us uh, where, uh, where we are in Matthew, it's Wednesday, in the last week of Jesus. We've spent a lot of time on the last week. I mean, think of, can you remember when we did the triumphal entry? It was like Halloween, right? So, um, and then uh, we, had, we took a little time off and, and, and things, but um, we spent a lot of time on the last weeks, and it feels like we spent a lot of it, especially this year, we spent a lot of it on, on Jesus' final teaching. <clears throat> and so remember, he was in the temple, he pronounced the woes upon the Pharisees and the the whole Pharisaic system, and then he predicted the destruction of the temple, and then they leave the temple. So it's late Friday afternoon. They go up on the uh, they go up on the Mount of Olives, which is right across the creek, basically, and um, and they're looking back over Jerusalem, and he's having a, has a long conversation with his disciples about when all these things are going to happen. When is the destruction of the temple going to happen? That's very apocalyptic. When is he coming back? That's more like, I'm not really sure. So, um, and, but he really spends, so he spends the time on, um, on how to prepare for his return. So there's this transition, a uh, couple of verses, where it says, and you can just see sort of how, when they didn't have, he, Matthew didn't make chapters per se. So this is, you can hear that this is a transition statement. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. So that's it's just before sunset. The, day, the Jewish day started at sun, with the setting of the sun. And so it's the end of Wednesday. Thursday comes with the setting of the sun. That's the first day, then Friday, and that would be the Passover. So they're actually going to have the Passover meal on Thursday because once the setting of the sun on Friday, that's Sabbath and they can't do it. They can't prepare it. So they're going to have the Passover meal on Thursday night. So, so it's two days, and the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. 
So that's the transition, and then we, we see that the, the um, result, the, uh, the consequence of the pronouncing the woes, and all the teachings uh, sort of against the Pharisees and the religious establishment, it says the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest. Incidentally, that is, for those of you who've been to Jerusalem, you know that it's very close to where, the, um, uh, where, the last, where they ate the Last Supper. So they ate the last, well, we're not there yet. I'll, I'll, I'll map that out when we get there. Last Supper is next week. But um, they gathered at the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. They want him dead. And they said, but not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Of course, it was during the feast. So, they are ticked. The chief priests and the elders. They're going to kill him. This was murder, a violation of the Ten Commandments, which you would think would be repugnant to these uh, Pharisees. And yet, I'm sure that they felt justified in their own minds because they believed that Jesus was a blasphemer. So, I mean... I would assume, I would guess, that in that, in that mind's frame, mindset, that, that it was not in that sense murder, it was a defense of God's righteousness. And so they didn't see them. And so the stage is set. This is a little transition paragraph. Any, any questions or thoughts about that transition, first five verses in chapter 26? Okay. So it's still Wednesday night, but they got to eat supper. So let's read, beginning with, chat, uh, with verse 6 through 13. So, now when Jesus was at Bethany, remember Bethany is a little town on the other side of the Mount of Olives. When Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, wait, What? Jesus is in the house of Simon the leper? That is, like, don't miss that. That's, that's maybe the world's worst nickname, right? That is, like, you would not want to be, you know, Joe, Joe the leper. Like, that would be a bad nickname. I had a bad nickname as, in my fraternity. This, this is a little bit worse. Um, but I think, what, I think it highlights... Uh, I mean, it's very unlikely that Simon still had leprosy, and you probably know that leprosy was what they called a whole series of skin ailments, and some of them were curable and some were not. And so, um, so whatever he had was called leprosy, but it was cured. And yet it, you know, it, it stuck, so to speak. Um, and so, but just, again, he's still going to be an outcast. There's still a pall of, of suspicion. And Jesus is eating with an outcast in the outcast's home. Another instance of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Which has been a theme throughout Matthew. And Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? 
for she has done a beautiful thing for me. You, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That is pretty significant. So, the Gospel of Mark tells this story pretty similarly. The Gospel of John has a story that doesn't line up in terms of the time frame. It's a few days off. But it's got to be the same story. Um, And John says that she poured ointment on his feet and wiped the feet with her hair. So there's this... this I mean, to me, that's... And I don't mean to be disrespectful, um, but it sounds a little sexy. Like, it just sounds a little strange. And and it would have been, I think, incredibly offensive. If it is that way, then it would have been even more offensive, not just the cause. John also tells us this is Mary of Martha and Mary, who we know lived at Bethany, uh, and they are, this, of course, the sisters of Lazarus. Matthew and Mark don't name her. It was not a poor person. I mean, this is an expensive jar of, of ointment. And from what I'm told, um, I, and I didn't see it in, in the research for today, but, but, um, but I've heard this several times in the past, that an alabaster jar didn't have a top, like it was cast with the, um, uh, with the ointment in it and sealed, and then in order, like a piggy bank, you had to break it in order to get into it. And so there was no, once you opened it, that, it, was, it was open, you know. And so, um, and this is, it was, seems that it was hospitable and, and regular to put a little oil on the head of your guests, it was, you know, they were, it kind of refreshed, you see this in, in, in Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil, like at, at the table, right, there, you prepared a table before me in the, in the place of my enemies, anoint my head with oil, um, it is, it's hospitable, and, um, and yet, so the disciples aren't concerned with the act, at least in Matthew's account, but they're concerned with the extravagance. Because this is expensive stuff. The, um, I mean, it could have been, you know, some, some people said 300 denarii. This, it's all sort of speculation because it doesn't say exactly how much uh, it was worth. But it could have been uh, put, this money could have been put to good use. You just poured it out on the guy who has, to this point, claimed um, that he doesn't need anything. And in fact, just told a uh, rich guy who had everything and could have been a great asset to us to go sell everything he had and give it to the poor. And so there's this sense of righteous indignation that the disciples are welling up against. And Jesus, fresh off his opposition to the Pharisees, now comes against the thinking of the disciples. That... Um, Jesus seems to have no problem with the use of the luxury of this luxury item. And in fact, he calls her act beautiful, lovely. It's a lovely thing for her to do. What do you make of this when you read of this? Yes, Craig. Well, to me, it just seems like it's another uh, uh, place where uh, man's trying to bring God down to earth instead of looking up to God. Because when you really think about what Jesus Christ gave to the world, that oil is nothing. 
I mean, it's actually meaningless compared to what he's going to do and what he's going to give to the to the people. But yet, they don't see that. They only see that, you know, bring God down to earth and see the value of the oil itself as uh, meaningless. You know, because what difference does it make if the poor people have a little bit more to eat, but they don't have salvation? Nothing. So I, I see your points, right? I mean, that uh, Craig, if you couldn't hear on, on the computer, Craig said that, um, you know, what, what, what does it matter if the, if the um, poor people have a little more to eat if they don't have their salvation? And I think that, you know, what the value of, of what was wasted is minuscule compared to the value of what was achieved. They certainly didn't have, I mean, they couldn't, I don't think could be expected to have that perspective in the moment. I mean, I think that, that uh, I think you're probably right in, in, in large part, but the, um, uh, we do always try to put God into our own terms. Um, and I think you're right about that. But I do think also that, that perhaps their reaction is based on their training from Him and, and maybe, on, uh, maybe uh, expected. Connie. I think of um, just that it was it was an intimate act that she did, and and she felt comfortable and just so much in love with Jesus that she would do that. Right. It was intimate, and she was in love with Jesus, um, pro- and probably not. I mean, in a romantic sense. I mean, people are people, but. Yes, yeah, it's worship. I mean, you know, it's it's worship. It's she's giving her probably one of probably one of her own most valuable possessions. Who knows how she came into possession of it? Um, it's an heirloom passed down or something. But she's offering it to Jesus. Could people have been fed? Sure, sure. But um, but it is. I, I think we I think we would want to see that. And I think Jesus saw it as an act of adoration and, and worship. Charlotte. Telling of the fact that his body would be anointed and wrapped after his death. It's kind of a foretelling of what's... A foretelling of his, his what's burial and, and, and the anointing of his body for burial. And that's, of course, what he says, that she's anointed my body for burial. His executioners weren't going to do it. Now, Joseph of Arimathea and the disciples and, uh, were going to do it. And in fact, you know, because you know, you've read the story, you know that the, the women who were coming to the tomb on Sunday morning were coming to finish the job. They had to do a rush job on Friday, and they kind of did enough for the weekend, but then on, as soon as the, the Sabbath was over, they're coming to anoint his body and finish the job for, for burial. And he says, this is it. This is my anointing uh, for burial. Notably, what, what, is the, um, what is the principal use of, of, the, of anointing oil in the Old Testament, which would have been their only testament? John. It was yes, it was used by kings, but principally to anoint a king as, as divinely appointed. Like we see that when uh, David comes out from the fields, you know, young David, and Samuel pours oil over his head. Uh, he is, he's anointing him as the king. He doesn't take the office for many years, but he, he's anointing him. As the king, and so there's certainly, I think, for us as the audience, as Matthew's audience, there's an, a, an awareness, a recognition of this. Yes. Some of the scholars say that the oil that you pour on your head is the same oil 
and he's going to go down uh, to Jerusalem the following day, so he would be having sent for the king arriving at the destination. Yes. John says he would have the scent of the king on him uh, if this was the same oil. And it's, I, I don't know. I mean, is it burial oil? Is it king's oil? Is it the same? I mean, were they the same? I, I don't know. But I, the symbolism is, is all there. It's all there for sure. I think, again, it's significant that Matthew doesn't tell us that, who this is, that it doesn't tell us the name of the woman, um, but her act her act of service, her act of adoration will always be told. It's just another instance, again, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. She's unnamed. If perhaps, you know, John had a different angle, but perhaps Matthew Mark said, if we name it as Mary, people will say, oh, it's just Mary being Mary, you know, but, um, but it's actually, uh, we, we want to highlight uh, her humility, and she didn't do it to be recognized that she did it to uh, lift up Christ. How does this episode inform our ministry to the poor? I think we do the same for them. We pray for them, lay hands on them, I mean, Jesus doesn't say enough with this business about the poor, right? You'll always have the poor. And you, sh- I mean, all- he demonstrates throughout his life that we should. And in fact, he was, I mean, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was he, among the poor, right? He didn't have uh, any wealth to himself in this world anyway. But he, uh, he did uh, commission us uh, to care for the poor. And I think you're right, to treat them in this way, to be hospitable, um, to lift them up and to um, treat them as honorable and noble. What else? How does it inform our worship? Baptism? Baptism? Yeah, we're anointed. We are anointed with oil. Marked as Christ's own forever. It's one of my favorite things to do in my whole ordained ministry. Is to take that anointing oil and put it on the head of someone who's been baptized, whether they're a baby or even better if I can look in their eyes and they understand. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit and baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. And I can't tell you how many times I've uh, clung to that in a funeral homily. Someone who died too early. I don't know where they stood today, but I know this. They, somebody put oil on their forehead and, uh, and said, you are marked as Christ's own forever. And we stand in that hope. So, the chief priests and the religious establishment, they're already out to get Jesus. But now the tide begins to turn even within his own disciple community. There's, there's a, a fissure. There's a, a break in his agreement, their agreement with him. They're uncomfortable with him. All right. In, Charlotte. In one of the readings, though, it says that it's Judas that is upset that yep. he 
Not all the disciples. Not all the disciples. Yeah, Judas is incredulous. Uh, and that's in one of the readings. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm. John, I think. Judas has the purse. Right. Yeah, that's right. So John John is, is quicker to name Judas as the as as the bad guy. What we'll see is that Mark and Matthew they go back and forth with Peter and Judas. It's really, really interesting. If you notice, it doesn't he don't they don't call any attention to it, but it's Judas and then it's Peter. And then it's Judas and then it's Peter. It's the ultimate villain and the ultimate saint, back and forth, both betraying. So watch out for that in the in the weeks uh, in the weeks to come. Yes. For the longest time, I think I hated Judas. But if it hadn't been for Judas, we wouldn't have had the gift of salvation. So how can you really hate him? He was just a harbinger of what was to come. He he wasn't Satan per se, was he? Or the embodiment of Satan? Um, Well, one of the scriptures says says that Satan entered into Judas. But... um, but how can we hate him if if he is um, if, if he is the harbinger if if we actually get our salvation because of his act? I mean, Saint Paul says, "Should I sin all the more that grace may abound?" By no means. Um, Jesus said, "It must go as the son, as is written of the Son of Man." But woe to him through whom this comes. Um, and so I think that it's another instance in which uh, are we saved by grace? Absolutely. For we are accountable for our actions without grace, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks who think Jesus, I mean, that Judas is in heaven because he did what he was called to do. And I would say this, you and I probably aren't smart enough to figure out the justice of God, but God is certainly smart enough. So I don't know. And I don't think we need to speculate. Because if it hadn't been Judas, it would have been Bartholomew or Thomas or somebody else. And so, um, you know, it's Judas represents humanity in that sense. Yeah, Craig. Well, even with uh, uh, Moses, um, God said that he created Pharaoh specifically for the role he was going to play, you know, and not accepting the terms and having all the plagues come, you know, so. Yeah, he had, he created Pharaoh, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. For that, yeah. So I mean, listen, God is just, and God's ways are higher than our ways. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But I don't think we need to. I, I, I don't think we need to wonder too much. Spend too much time wondering if where Judas is, because God is just, and He was certainly in God's hands. Yes. I think in a lot of ways, some ways, we all betray betray Jesus in our lives at some point. Sissy said that in some ways we all betrayed Jesus at some point in our lives. And i got to say, Sissy, you're stealing my thunder. Yeah. You're just, um, you're just looking at the end of the page, at the end of the book. And, you know. <laughs> so, um, he was distraught. He, was, he gave the money back and he killed himself. He was so distraught. Yes. Well, did that count as repentance? 
God is just. I do not know. I do not know. And Jesus died for all. And Jesus died for all. Now, one of the things we'll see next week, one of the most amazing things about the Last Supper is that he gives it to Judas. And he washes Judas' feet. We won't see that. That's in John, but we'll talk about it. Anyway, we're not there yet. So verse 14, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, this is the first mention of Judas in the Gospel of Matthew, I think. I'd have to go back and verify that 100%, but I'm pretty sure it is. That's why he's named like this. Went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, he is the ultimate villain. Betrayed him. He's going, we know how it goes. He's going to betray him uh, with a kiss. Not, there he is, go get him, but walks up to him, Rabbi, kiss him on the cheek. However, was he duplicitous? Was he a traitor? Or, it was, was it more nuanced than that? The opportunity to betray doesn't necessarily mean opportunity to stab him in the back, but an opportunity to hand him over to the authorities. There's, a, there's certainly a shade in there of, of uh, hand over the one to whom I, I should have been loyal, but, but there is, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's out to get Jesus. What I think is likely, and, and it's informed speculation, is that what I think is likely is that Judas was zealous for righteousness. And he had aligned himself with Jesus because Jesus was going to be the, the liberator of the Jews. And he was going to overthrow Rome and he was following him for righteousness. And he had been increasingly uncomfortable with the lack of momentum in that direction, with the, um, the increasing... Um, uh, harshness with which Jesus is speaking of the religious establishment and of the temple itself. And, um, and in fact, the prediction to overthrow the temple, now it's all culminating in, in, in uh, Judas' heart. I do not know what's going on with this guy. And then a, a woman shows up and wastes all this oil like a king that could have been used for the poor. And, and he's just... I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I, I have hitched my wagon to the wrong tractor. And I am going to go to the, the religious establishment, and I'm going to the authorities. I mean, who else am I going to go to? He does ask for some payment. And so is he greedy? I mean, I, maybe. Maybe he, needed, maybe he still loved Jesus, and he needed to, I don't know, that was... The conflict. There is, there is mention of 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah 11. It's talking about the shepherd. It's not the same passage in Zechariah that says they'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will, uh, the sheep will scatter. But it's, it's, mo- it's getting there. It's getting towards that passage. And so um, it, it, it can't all be principled because he does seek this, this gain. But he goes to the ones who he ought to be able to trust if he can't trust Jesus. He goes to the religious leaders. How does that 
sit with you that this was just the last straw in Judas's disappointment. Elaine. The authorities knew who Christ was. They knew where he was. So why do we need in the Bible a traitor like Judas? I mean, they could have gone and gotten Christ huh. at any time. Why didn't? And so the question is: Is why do we need a traitor? Why couldn't the authorities have just gone and gotten him? He was too popular. He was too popular with the, with the people. They, they, it, you know, you notice they go at night in the dark. You know. To get him, because they tried to get him when he was out teaching, you would have had the crowds having a fit. Yeah, I mean, that's why they said not so during the feast. Somebody to set him up. There's 120, 150,000 people in Jerusalem for the Passover. Normally, there's 15,000 people. So there's, um, there's, they're all there. It's huge crowds. Jesus is political turmoil, and Jesus is kind of in the center of all of it. It's just going to cause an uproar. If they go get him now, could they have waited? I think probably they just took. They, it says they were looking for an opportunity. Here's their opportunity. And one of his own guys. Because I feel they could have gone at night, the same as they did. Well, and so, so we needed to have one them. question is what? Uh, the, <laughs> Elaine just said we needed to have Judas. Now that is a really interesting point because because they we're talking strategically. Could they have gone and gotten him another time? Sure. Yeah, but they didn't have flyers to hand out to the guards to tell them which one was Jesus. They didn't have Facebook, you know, they put it up. So, um, you get the guy on the road with the beard. I mean, you know, so. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so they found their opportunity. Now, the, I think, so the, strategically, there's probably other ways that could have accomplished it. But G, the whole, I think the whole point is that Jesus was completely isolated. So we see the, Judas is the first one to jump into the crack between Jesus and the disciples. Okay? So it says, uh, how, what will you give me? If, um, and, and from that moment, Jesus, uh, Judas, he sought an opportunity to betray him, which is to give him over. Now, now it's Thursday. Okay. Remember too is that this was masterminded by God, not by man. You know, and I think a lot of things went into play with it. It said Jesus got captured, and the least amount of people got hurt during something that could have been like a, a, the worst riot you've ever seen. Okay. And so for that to happen, God had to have play in it. Well, yeah, because Jesus, that's, that's really important, because, uh, and I don't know that I've ever actually articulated it quite like that, but Craig said that, that God masterminded this, and the least number of people got hurt. Because if Jesus had, it had been all of his followers that got killed, then did they all die for our sins? No, like this is, there, it had to be the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? So that's, they had to die in isolation. He had to be the, the point of the funnel, for all of our sins. So that's a really good way to think about it. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, this is chapter, this is verse 17, and what this is is this is Thursday. So they had the uh, uh, they had the dinner in Bethany. Judas goes out. Now we got Thursday. We don't have a lot of activity on Thursday. It's the first day of unleavened bread. The disciples came to Jesus saying. 
All right, Jesus, it's the Passover. Where were you going to have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man. Say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, I used to think this was like, almost like magic. You know, like that he's prophesying and making some man. He probably just had seen him the day before. and I mean, you know, like it was one of his benefactors. It doesn't have to be magic. He could just say, oh, you know, go, go to this certain man. And Matthew doesn't include his name. Because he said, if you need anything, if you want to be at our house for Passover, I mean, something like that. Um, and the disciples did as Jesus directed him, and they prepared the Passover. Same kind of thing with the, uh, the triumphal entry and the donkey. Like, he just, it is just as, it's fine if you think it is, like, miraculous, but it's also fine if he prearranged the donkeys to just talk to a guy, you know, so... When it was evening, so now we're Thursday night, right? He reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating the Passover meal, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. (laughs) Talk about a downer in the conversation. (laughs) Thanks, Jesus. And as they were, uh, he said, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? Now, one of the things that I have never forgotten that I learned in my Greek class, classes, one of them, is that actually this is the this is a word-for-word translation. Is it I, Lord? But the construction of that sentence actually means it's not me, is it? In other words, they're not inquiring piously, am I the one who will betray you? But they're looking after themselves. Uh Uh-uh, not me, is it? You're not talking about me, are you? Like, I don't want to be outed. So they're continuing to isolate themselves. Rather than having to say, oh my gosh, somebody's going to betray you, we will stand with you. They are protecting themselves. Nobody looks across the table and everybody says, it's not going to be you because I'm going to come after you if it is. Like nobody, They're all looking after themselves. Very interesting. And they were sorrowful and began to say, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Psalm 41 speaks about this. You can read that as if it's on the lips of Jesus. The Son of Man goes as it is written about Him, but woe to that man. This is what we're talking about. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, I don't know. That sounds like judgment to me. But God is just, right? And Judas, who would betray Him, answered, Is it I, Lord? It's not me, is it, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So what is looming for Jesus is isolation. The religious leaders who should have recognized Him, the disciples who have followed Him and should have stayed with Him, and Jesus will be left utterly, the government who is charged with protecting and serving, isolation from God the Father, from everybody, is looming. For Jesus.
Richard. We asked uh, earlier why, 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 why Jews when the military or the authorities come and get him. He's foretelling right here that one of his disciples is going to be the, the deceiver. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, you know, it doesn't. I mean, the psalm doesn't say the military came and got me. It said my, my dear friend. You know, the one who, and you know, eating, it, it, it was even more of a sign of fellowship for their culture than, than ours. It was a sign of, of unity, which is what makes the Last Supper all the more remarkable, which we'll talk about next week. What else? John. Yes. Yeah, we see his love for enemies on display. He knows Judas is his enemy, and later on we find out he gives Judas three different opportunities to change his mind. Well, he calls him friend when he comes into the into the garden. Emily, what were you going to say? Uh, I'm going to say, following up what Susie said um, about. Um, Judas fulfilling the scripture. I just don't, I mean, I always thought about that too, but then it sounds to me here, and maybe I'm misreading it, that um, Jesus is condemning Judas. So he knew who, what was happening, he knew it was his time, he knew that um, the way it was going to happen, what happened, yet he condemned him. He does condemn him. Jesus is, it is, the world is not unraveling for Jesus. He is in complete control. It is going for the Son of Man as it is written. Not just in the Scriptures, but in the heavens. And so, um, so yes, I mean, it does say it would have been better if He had not been born. I mean, I, listen, He doesn't delight, we've got to remember, God takes no delight in the death of a sinner. It is His will that none should perish. And we will be held accountable for our actions. And we're saved by grace and not by works. So, you should care for yourself <laughs> and turn to Jesus and not worry about Judas or anybody else. Whether, I mean, you, you know, you want to be concerned, but you don't, want to, you don't want to cast judgment. I think even on Judas. But it does say pretty, claim, pretty plainly right here, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So. So he's the one. He's the only one that can pass judgment. He is sorrowful. Does does he act? Yes, he's God, Jesus is the only one who can pass judgment. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, he's the only one. Richard. You know, one thing I see in that, and I ask that kind of, is that I will. As we as we move along in our journey with the Lord, that we come come to juncture sometimes that try us, <clears throat> and, and and we think coming up to that, Lord, I wouldn't betray you. I wouldn't betray you of what what you're doing in my life. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden we come to this question: Am I? Is it me? Will I will I deny you? Yes, I think that's really important. Um, Richard said it, that we all come to that point where we need to ask this question, and, and this is where we need to find ourselves, that we all are capable. And in fact, as, as Sissy said, uh, we all can look on our lives and see where we have betrayed Jesus in thought, word, or deed. Externally, 
without any, you know, sort of maybe maybe uh, verbally, we, there was a time in our life where we were repudiated or whatever, but, we've, but certainly internally. I'm just serving myself rather than God. You know, we all have uh, betrayed in the sense that we have not fulfilled our obligations. We've um, been loyal to another when we said we'd be loyal to Christ. That is the essence of sin. Big or small, the essence is I'm loyal to my own whims, my own uh, needs, and, uh, and not to God's. And so that's what we're saved from. We're, he took on that isolation so we could have unity with God. Linda, last word. Hmm. Yes. We're all guilty. Yeah, I heard. Uh, I heard somebody say once, "Man, if I'd been there on Jesus's team, this never would have happened." <laughs> you missed the point. <laughs> you missed the point. Yeah. All right. We get, that's it for our time today. Thank you so much. Next week, breaking bread, breaking down. We'll finish out uh, chapter twenty-six. No, we won't. A third. The next third. The next third. Twenty-six through forty-six. Next. Next week. It's really. It's the. Uh, it's the Lord's Supper and it's Gethsemane. Next week.